The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Well, um, let me just say I feel somewhat like a celebrity with, uh, with this thing on this morning. And also, I don't typically wear a jacket, but uh, it actually took them about 30 minutes in Sunday school class this morning to realize I wasn't a visitor and I was kind of in disguise. So, <laughs> And also, speaking of Sunday school class, um, they actually witnessed a miracle this morning. Uh, and those that are laughing are the ones who were in there. I actually went the entire 45 minutes and didn't say one word. And, uh, and I thought I was going to get out of there without that recognition, but then uh, John Higgins uh, did bring up that fact. So, uh, and it's not because I didn't have anything to say about um, this particular passage, but it's because several weeks ago I chose this passage, and I didn't know at the time that it was the same lesson as the, the Sunday school uh, lesson. So I just remained quiet because I knew once I got up here, I couldn't remember if I said something. Did I have I already said that to this group or was that in the Sunday school or, or whatever? So it is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 uh, through 21. And as Pastor Darren's already already spoke that we've had, uh, and it's a privilege, let me just say, to, to be someone that... Um, that has the opportunity and the, and the privilege to, to stand here this morning. We've heard messages, on, I think, on preaching, theology, gospel, and conversion. And, and the subject I've been given this morning is that of evangelism. And, and typically, when you hear a sermon on evangelism, and, and rightly so, it's typically from the, our duty and, and our obligation. And we're certainly going to look at that this morning. But I want to look at it from a little different um, angle because uh, typically, what comes to mind when you think of evangelism? There, there's a certain emotion that just hits us out of nowhere. And, and typically, that emotion is, is fear. I think fear is the, probably the number one emotion, the number one hindrance to, to evangelism. And sometimes, that's because of the, the concept that evangelism brings. When we think of evangelism or sharing the gospel... Sometimes we think of this certain style or the way we should be doing it or, you know, having somebody in a, in a headlock and demanding that they become uh, a Christian. But, but it's interesting this morning as I, as, uh, as I study this scripture over the, the last few weeks, some other questions come to mind. Um, first of all, what motivates me to actually share the gospel? Motivation uh, means everything. Is, is, is my motivation uh, the love of God? Is it guilt? Um, or, or just what is it? Because that uh, will determine whether we continue to do what we've been called to do or we do it for a while and then quit or whatever. Also, what is the message that I'm actually sharing? Uh, is it my opinions, uh, my ideas, or is it actually the Word of God? And the, the, the Word of reconciliation is what Paul speaks about this morning. And then lastly, what is my goal? I think a lot of times we set out um, to do something and we don't even really know what we're aiming for. And, and if we don't know what the target is or, or what the goal is, how do we know if we've ever reached it? And, and it's interesting in this scripture, um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul seems to, to bring all these things uh, together. He, he seems to answer uh, some of these questions and give us those answers. 
so I want to see how the Apostle Paul introduces the subject of evangelism. And it's interesting because he never uses that word. And I think it's good for us because he gives a little different light. And he calls it the ministry of reconciliation. And, and maybe we could and should start looking at his evangelism for what it is. It, it is the proclamation of the Word of God, of how people come to Christ. But what if we looked at it that, that we've been called to a ministry and the purpose is that we are in the business, individually and corporately, of reconciling people to God, to, to bringing people to an understanding of what it would take for God to be reconciled or for them to be reconciled to God. That seems to take some of the edge of when we speak of this word uh, evangelism or proclaiming. It's, it's the ministry of reconciliation. If you would stand with me this morning, um, and we are going to be, again, with the, the Sunday school lesson of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 14 through 21, and, and as we look at the scripture this morning, I want to explore for sure two areas, and that is what exactly is the ministry of reconciliation? What does that word mean? But also, what is the motivation? What was Paul's motivating thrust what was the aim of his life in in this reconciliation uh, ministry and if, if time permits a quick look at the message and the mark of reconciliation uh, so second corinthians starting verse 14 says for the love of christ controls us having concluded this that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though Christ were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for uh, just the opportunity uh, to be here this morning. God, thank you for the message of reconciliation. Thank you that sinful man, uh, all of us, Lord, have at least the opportunity uh, to be reconciled to holy God through what Christ has done. God, this is a message that you've entrusted to us and to share with family and friends and complete strangers and to the ends of the earth. So God, we just pray, Lord, that we would pick up something this morning, that you would speak through your word, that you would speak through me, Lord, perhaps something that will be retained long from now that will help us some way explain how others can know this God that we know. And God, we just uh, trust you this morning that you're here and that you will work through this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, the first thing I want to look at is the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18 says, God reconciled us. And, and that's an important word to remember. Uh, because it's twice in this one scripture, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So just so we get off on the right foundation, uh, typically when you think of evangelism, we think we just kind of check out because 
again, the ministry, especially in the terms that it says ministry, uh, we're going to be thinking, well, that's for Pastor Darren or uh, uh, the, the deacons or somebody else that uh, this, this, uh, this work of evangelism, it just isn't uh, for me. But, but he's saying this is us, you and I. He's speaking to the church body at Corinth, and, and he's saying that God give this to, to us as our ministry. Paul isn't preaching to uh, the seminary students at Midwestern. He's not preaching at an evangelist conference. If he was here today, he would be telling us the same thing, that you and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And regardless of individual gifts and callings and ministries that we already have, those, those are good and those certainly need to be recognized and those are certainly how we want to uh, be the main expression of our ministry. But in and through that, the purpose is still. Whatever ministry we find ourselves doing, whatever calling, whether it be uh, taking care of the little ones or or um, Awana's, the, still the idea is that others would know uh, Christ, that others would be reconciled. And, uh, and if this ministry belongs to us, then we need to kind of have an idea of what it is. And in the biblical context, the word alone, reconciliation, it assumes, it comes with the idea that something was once there and has been broken uh, and needs to be reconciled, needs to be restored. Well, in the biblical sense, we know the story, typically most of us do, of what happened in the garden. There was a relationship that humanity, Adam and Eve, our first mother and father, had with God, and it was a perfect, uh, righteous relationship. They were in the garden. Everything was perfect. Temptation came. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They believed the, the devil. Sin entered into the world, and because sin came, death came. And the death of that relationship, that spiritual union that they had with Christ, that sin came uh, to all of humanity. So and even in the scripture, you'll see in Adam, in Christ, in Adam or in Christ. And that's meaning that we're in one of two places, spiritually speaking. In Adam is to be in a condemned state that we're going to talk about uh, in just a little bit. Or to be in Christ means that we have been, we've been reconciled. Sin not only broke that relationship. And we talked a little bit about this uh, this morning as well. But Romans 5.10 says something even greater happened. And we typically don't think of ourselves in, in this terms. But actually, this uh, truth is actually one of the truths, as horrible as it was to me, is what actually helped bring me to Christ. Romans 5.10 says, because sin entered, we became enemies of God. Now, that's quite a subject to think how is that even possible? We hear about God's love and God's grace, and, and now it says that Romans 5.10 says that in a lost state, we were enemies of God. But it goes on to say for the Christian, for those who know God, it says, but even in that condition, we were reconciled. That relationship was restored by the death of his son. Something happened in the garden. Something was broken. That relationship with God was broken. Sin entered, death entered. We were separated from God. Something on the cross happened, even uh, so much more glorious than, than anything that we can imagine. And that's that that relationship uh, was restored. Um, the, the death of, of, of Christ on the cross, he, he placed our sin upon himself. Second Corinthians, the last scripture we read this morning, the last verse, says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And I don't know that I fully can comprehend or, or understand the depth of that one scripture. 
of, of how does Christ become sin and how does that exactly look. But I do know this, that it, that it means that he took our sin, he took our punishment, he took our wrath, and he became the substitutionary atonement. He stood in our place and took the eternal wrath of God as God's enemy. Innocent, without sin, is who Jesus Christ was. But he says, I will take the sin of humanity because of love, and I will, I will take that punishment and wrath so they may be reconciled to God. And, and, and what happened there on the cross, Colossians 1.20, says that peace was made through the blood of the cross. There's been a, a reconciliation that was made possible because of the cross. And because God is holy, and some people say, well, why didn't God just, couldn't he overlook it? Well, it's because he's holy and he's just. And because of that, he cannot just overlook sin. Imagine that you're an observer in a Kansas City courtroom, and you see a lawbreaker. And typically what we do, because of self-righteousness, we want to justify him. You know what? We may even admit that we're a lawbreaker. But you tell the judge, says, well, judge, I understand that I broke the law, but, but what about all this good that I've done? And you see, that's where many people are basing heaven on. They're not looking at so much what they did wrong. They're looking at the good they did. If that judge is a, is a judge of justice, he has to say, you're not here because of the good you've done. You're here because that you broke the law. And it'll be the same way when we stand before God on judgment day. We will either stand there as a lawbreaker or we will stand there with the covering of Christ. Either Christ has already taken our punishment or we will bear it ourselves. Because he is just and he is righteous. We're all lawbreakers in God's courtroom. All of us. It says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And because of that sin, we're guilty. And because of that guilt, we're condemned. This morning, we're living in a condemned world. It, it's already been condemned. And, and it's interesting because didn't Jesus say, I didn't come to condemn the world but to save it? See, that used to be a really confusing scripture for me. Because Jesus, if you didn't come to condemn the world, you say some things in the scripture that seem pretty condemning, like repent or perish, the talk about judgment, the talk about eternal fire. To me, that seems like condemnation. But I began to understand what he was saying with that. You see, long before Jesus ever came, he was looking down on a world that was already condemned. It was condemned because of what happened in the garden. So even that even magnifies his grace and his mercy. He's looking down on a condemned world, willingly decided to come. He says, I'm not going to condemn it. It's condemned already. I'm going to save it. And what he is speaking, when he speaks truth that sometimes we're fearful to say, that is a gracious act that Jesus is trying to p help people understand. Not that he's there to condemn it, but they're already condemned. But yet he is the glorious Savior that can snatch them out of that. And that's why sometimes the hard truth, the most gracious, loving thing we can do is be truthful with people. And they're going to think that we're condemning them. And you know what? If we go about it the wrong way, it'll come across like that. But even speaking truth of where they stand before a holy, righteous God, the Word of God is what condemns them. The truth is what condemns them. They're already condemned. It just reveals light in their darkness. Because of the cross, eight uh, Romans 8 1 it says therefore there's no longer any condemnation in Christ you see so we live as condemned we're walking dead men spiritually dead 
And uh, the condemnation is just, it's waiting. The judgment is waiting for those who don't know Christ. Uh, but Romans 8.1 says, for those who are in Christ, there's no more uh, condemnation because of what he did. Jesus said in John 15, 15, he says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. That, that is the meaning of the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation, former enemies of God, now friends with God. And, and our own reconciliation, the experience that you and I have had, is what qualifies us for the ministry of reconciliation. And this is important because you say, well, okay, what could I offer? Again, we're scared of the word evangelism sometimes, sometimes or even that word ministry. But um, the ministry of reconciliation, you are qualified because of what you've experienced. You, you may not feel so. You may not think that you've got certain gifts. and different, But if you have a testimony, then you're qualified. You, some of you have heard the phrase, it, it takes one to know one. That's exactly where we are. If, if you're a Christian, you know what it's like to be in lostness. You know what it's like to be hopeless and, and without peace and joy. You know what it likes to, to serve self in the world. But, but now in, in Christ, you know what it's like to be reconciled. I used to think as a, as a young Christian, you know, this, this evangelism is difficult. It's kind of hard. So I'm thinking, God in his wisdom, why couldn't he just, you know, wrote the gospel message in the clouds? If that's his, that's his aim, he wants all men to come to repentance, why didn't he just write in the clouds? Or even better, why didn't he have angels? Why didn't he send angels around? I mean, they don't have the, the logistics issues that we have. I mean, they can walk through doors or just appear and probably have no problem with memory. Or Here's the reason they can't, because they do not know what it's like to be reconciled to God. They don't know what it's like to be a sinner. They don't know what it's like to be lost. We are qualified to be ministers of reconciliation because of what we've experienced, because we know the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Verse 20 uh, gives us our position, says we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. A ambassadors are chosen people. And again, when, when we think of this subject of evangelism, reconciliation, we typically look at it, in, again, and from the perspective of, of what we have to do or what we need to do or what the duty or the obligation is. And, and again, there's an element of truth to that. But if we can embrace the title, the position, the understanding of what it means to be an ambassador for Christ, to be this, this chosen vessel, uh, to be given this, um, this amazing treasure to, to share with people that don't have it. Uh, I think that perspective would help us become better ministers of reconciliation. Um, ambassadors are chosen, they're sent to a foreign land, typically in the way that we know it, uh, to represent and declare uh, and proclaim the goodwill and message of the leader of the king. Um, and that's what we do now. You say, well, does that mean you have to be a, a missionary in the, in, the, in the kingdom sense? No, it's, what it's saying is that we are ambassadors because when we became Christians, we are now aliens and foreigners here. That we're just, we're just passing through. So, so the question is, have you ever considered Christianity, again, from the perspective of being a kingdom? The, the kingdom, that Jesus preached the kingdom of God. He came declaring, proclaiming the kingdom of God. John 18, 36 says, my kingdom is not of this world. John 17, he was speaking of the disciples, says the world has hated them because they were not of this world. 
And I'm not sure that Christianity, the gospel, discipleship, salvation, sanctification, justification, any of it makes sense outside the context of the kingdom of the kingdom of God. The apostles always preached in the context of the kingdom of God. They prayed and were taught by Jesus to pray, your kingdom come. Acts 28, 31, Paul preached boldly about the kingdom of God. And, and why is that important? It's because even Jesus, the joy set before him, the, the things that was coming, and in one sense the kingdom has come in Christ, but we know that there's a future kingdom coming as well. And if that is our motivating factor, then we'll not put down roots here, not, not in the sense, spiritual sense. We will, we will know that, that there is something, something much greater coming. As Christians, we're looking for another home. The Bible refers to us as sojourners, that, that we're just on a, on a trip. Uh, I took a, a, a trip to Africa a few years ago, and I was there for five weeks. And, and, and even when we lived there, it, we knew that we lived there for four years. We knew that it wasn't our home. So there was certain ways we reacted to certain situations uh, because of that fact. We, we knew that America was always our home. That's where our family was. And we always had knew that there was that joy of returning. And so that helped um, that helped us make decisions and how we lived our life and, and that we didn't buy a house in, in Africa. And, and the same way knowing that, um, and I'm not saying that we don't buy houses. I'm just saying in the sense of, of understanding that there's something far greater than this, than this world. Jesus says we are not of this world because we have been born into another kingdom in, in the spiritual sense, and there's something far greater. Uh, in verse 20, um, we have to understand that, that as ambassadors, God is wanting to speak through us on his behalf. It says as though God were making an appeal through us. You see, when I believe when Christ walked the earth, he was making that same appeal. And he says, I'm going away, and you'll do even greater things. And we know it was because of the Holy Spirit enabled and blazoned the, the apostles to go into the, the edge of the world. And what were they doing? They were making an appeal. They were making the appeal, be reconciled to God. And it hasn't changed for us today. God intends and he wants to use us to, to make an appeal to lost people, to a lost world through us. And again, understanding that truth ought to be very encouraging and freeing. We don't have to give our opinions or ideas. or It's the word of reconciliation uh, that God gives us as that tool. Paul understood that he wasn't of this world, and it defined how he did everything in ministry. He had the authority of an, of the amb of an ambassador, that Christ was his, his king, and that, he was, um, and that he was a sojourner on his way to a heavenly kingdom. And therefore, nothing in this world bothered him. And, and in the meantime, he had one message. One message for this world, and that was be reconciled to God. That's the ministry of, of reconciliation. Let's look at the motivation. Verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us. Your, your version may say constrains us or, or compels. I, I think constrain is a, is, a, is a good word. It's a, a good image. It, Paul was a man under constraints, and it's the image of, a, of the water in a river. It's, it's just, it controls, and he can't go outside those boundaries. Uh, Paul, Paul was a, once a man who was constrained or under the control of the letter of the law. He's now confessing that he's controlled by something far greater, and, and it's the love of Christ. 
And it's, it's important to note here that he's not speaking of his love for Christ. He's speaking of Christ's love for him. Even though he loved Christ because of that initial love, he's speaking that he's starting to grasp how much Christ loves him. It was his all-consuming passion and the reason why Paul existed. In the context of our text, again, the text is about reconciliation. So in the context this morning, it's the motivating factor of what compelled Paul's passion for others to be reconciled. And again, we don't need to miss that. Here's what was happening with Paul. Verse 14 says, he concluded, or we might say he came to the conclusion that one died for all. And that, that word for means in place of or instead. So, so Paul is reflecting that, that Christ, this one named Christ, died for all or stood in the place of us, you and I, again, individually and for the world. So God's love, the love of Christ, was no longer this, this abstract concept. You have to remember he was a, a Jewish Pharisee and he was very, very religious but now, that now he's seen and understood that God's love was a love in, in action, that Jesus died for all, Jesus died for Paul, and Jesus died for you and I. So, so Paul, because of that, an understanding of that, Paul had a passion, and it all started with the love of Christ. Sometimes when we think about evangelism uh, in general, people say, well, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of, of different programs and methods and all that, but we have to be careful not to confuse uh, the method with the message. The methods in some ways and the way we present may change, but the message always remains the same. And, and people say, well, what can I do to be more evangelistic, to be more motivated? And sometimes uh, knowledge, uh, understanding the Scripture and what actually is the gospel, uh, that's important. But, but the greatest thing, the greatest motivating factor we could do is to get in the Scriptures and fall in love with Christ. Because to know him is to love him. And to understand his love for us is to understand his love for others. And God begins to do something with those seeds. Um, and we will have a genuine love that's not of ourself. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And, uh, and we will love others like, like at least to a degree that Christ does. The love of Christ is only mentioned three times in the New Testament in those exact phrases. Um, the love of Christ is, is mentioned in Ephesians 3. And it's interesting, all three times it was the Apostle Paul who mentions it. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, Paul prayed. Paul thought so much of this love that he was praying for others. He says, I, he prayed that Christians would comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Paul wanted others to really, really get this. To really understand the love of Christ. First of all, that it was eternal. I mean, think about it. when you reflect on, on God's love, do we really understand e eternal? Uh, th this life is like a, a vapor, a puff. It, it's, it's here one day and, and gone the next. But when we're speaking about eternity and, and what Christ has done for all of us eternity because of his great love, it, it changes us. I remember a preacher saying one time, he says, you know, we've seen, we've been there 10,000 years and we've only just begun. When we've been in heaven 10,000 years, the first second of eternity is about to begin. Now that, when I heard that, certain things just never leave you. 
And, uh, and that's the, the, what Paul focused on. And again, you can't fully understand the love of God until you understand what he, de- what he saved you from, what he delivered you from. So when, when people are in destruction in a place called hell, and when we know that we were headed there and what God saved us, it's the same truth. Not only is there the positive side that after 10,000 years, the first second of eternity is about to begin, but we realize that the first second of eternity, those 10,000 years, weren't where we should be, what we deserved. That's the love of Christ. I believe he meditated on it. It's also that I believe that he meditated and thought about the unconditional. You know, we live in a, we live in a world where our love typically is conditional. In other words, we set conditions on people. Okay? Now, probably the closest thing that we have, and it's interesting that it's Mother's Day, is a mother. And you, you've heard that the unconditional love of a mother. I think that a mother's love is probably the closest example and representative of what, it, of what Christ's love is because it's self-sacrificing. It's, it's putting others in, in before yourself. But in general, we have conditions, even as Christians, and we talked a little bit about this in our study this morning. We put these walls up and these boundaries, and we do it subconsciously. We don't even realize we're, we're doing it many times. But we will go so far with somebody. But even in our mind, we have these conditions that if they break these conditions or they don't meet these expectations, then the love just isn't there. Well, Christ is different. Now, we know as Christians there's, there's such thing as discipline and those sort of things. But the love of Christ is never stripped from us. There's, there's no condemnation in Christ. So, and here's the thing about that, how freeing that is. That, that is a, a freeing truth, um, that, that God's love is unconditional. And, and Paul says, I want you to understand that. And it's ironic how he, put, how he words this, this scripture is worded. Here's what he says, it, it surpasses knowledge. Uh, he, he says, I, I want Christians to understand it. I pray that they would comprehend it, the depth and the height and how, how expansive it is. But then he goes on to say, I want them to know this kind of love which surpasses knowledge. So that's kind of ironic. He says, I, w- I am praying that you understand it, but you know what? You can't fully understand it because it, it surpasses comprehension. It surpasses all knowledge. But he does know that we can understand it to a degree, even though we don't fully comprehend it, uh, and it surpasses what our finite, finite minds can, can understand. It's, uh, it's the motivating factor. Paul knows if we can grasp that, then we will be sharing the gospel with others. It's also mentioned in Romans 8, 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword? The third time the love of Christ is used. Paul says, who can separate us from that? Life, again, is about perspective, the way Paul seen life and the way he viewed truth. And, and Paul is seeing things right now in this scripture through a biblical worldview he's looking at life through the lens and understanding of the love of christ and and he said all these things would try to separate us but he says it's it's impossible and here's how he viewed these afflictions in light of god's of god's love he says they are light momentarily temporarily afflictions so that's what he's looking at now we would look at we understood fully what paul went through we would say how in the world did he did he was he able to endure that well, here he tells us, he, the love of Christ is in one hand, his life's over here, and he says, in comparison to what Christ has done for me, 
for what's coming in, in the kingdom that's coming, these are, these are nothing, and they're only temporary. Imagine this. Even if, if we were persecuted and suffering for the 80, 90 years that we lived, again, it is a snap of the fingers compared to what is awaiting for those who love God. Luke 7, Jesus was visiting a, a Pharisee, and there was a sinful woman there. And she brought out an alabaster box, and we know some of us know the story that she broke, put this perfume on the feet of Jesus and, and wept. And the Pharisee, in his mind, was thinking, does Jesus really know who this sinful woman is? And, uh, and of course, Jesus, being who he was, knew what the Pharisee was, was thinking. And Jesus made a pretty profound statement. He says, those who are forgiven much love much. And as you think about that, what did Jesus mean, forgiven much, love much? I mean, what Christian reconciled to God isn't forgiven much? The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, which is who he was, the same sect of this man, or you had the sinful woman. So, so what Christian isn't forgiven much? I think that Jesus was teaching a, a deeper truth um, that what meets the eye there, and that's the understanding, the very thing that Paul's speaking about, the love of Christ, that this woman understood how much she had been forgiven. And I think that's why Paul prayed the way he did in Ephesians about the, the length and the day. To understand the love of God and how much we've been forgiven is to love him much. So again, if you want to know what motivates us or should or, or how do we become better at sharing the gospel, it's to, it's to focus and meditate on what Christ has done for you. And Jesus even said, you know, when those times come and when hardships come, he says, think about me. He says, you have not suffered to the point of death, of shedding blood. So to know for this forgiveness, to know the love of Christ, it's naturally to love him back. And again, sometimes I think that that's why even the, the love of a mother, the relationship between a son or daughter and the mother is even greater many times than that of the, um, of the father is because there's a, again, it doesn't mean that a father doesn't love his, his children any less, but the display and the understanding because of action that the mothers usually are self-sacrificing all things. There's just a different relationship there because of the understanding that that, that child has of of what the mother does for them. So so the question is. Sorry, I didn't. I brought Teresa's uh, up here to make sure I stayed on time and realized I was locked out of it. So, okay. I'm seeing where we're at. So, so what controls us this morning? What motivates us uh, in making life's decision? Uh, well, here's what it is for the majority of people, most of the time, including myself. It's, it's fear. Every person on this planet has a basic need, and that's to feel safe. It, it's just who we are. And um, so we create this life and environment that is safe, and we, we fear anything that threatens it. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we, we need to feel safe. But here all of a sudden we become a Christian. Jesus says, go and preach the gospel. And by the way, people will hate you. Some will persecute you. Some will put you in prison. Some of you will even die. Jesus now has just stripped us of all of our security. Our safe life no longer exists. And, but here's the good news. We don't abandon our need for security. We, we just replace it. Our trust is just placed now in Christ. Jesus says, do not fear several times throughout the scripture. He understands the need. He just redefines it. He just redefines it. He puts it in the context of the eternal. Tribulations here, yes, but eternally safe. 
And, and when we understand that eternity and the love of Christ, we're compelled to share this love, this security, so that the others may know the, the love of Christ. Well, uh, trying to think what I have time here for. Um, yeah. Um, here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine in your mind you see a, a face. It's a stranger. And this stranger is an African man living in the West country, uh, West African country of Niger. His name's Ali. He's a Muslim. He speaks Arabic. You don't know this man. Um, but you know that he lives far away, and it's a dangerous place. Ali has a disease, and he will be dead in five days. But you have one thing. You have the cure. What legitimate obstacles come to mind when you think of everything I just told you about this stranger named Ali? What legitimate obstacles might prevent you from getting this cured Ali in time? And I know that there's several things. There's several things that probably popped in your mind instantly. One may be money, $2,000 just to get on a plane. One may be time. How can we get there in five days, and how can we arrange it our and we live in America? And then about the danger. How would we orchestrate the dangers and the Islamic radicals and, and certain things? Legitimate obstacles. So here, now what I want you to do is imagine another face. Someone that is in your family that you would be willing to die for. Could be a son, a daughter, a mother, a father. Put that person's face in, the mi in your mind. They live in Niger, the West African country of Niger, in a dangerous anti-Christian area. Your loved one has a disease, and they'll be dead in five days. And you have one thing, the cure. What legitimate obstacles would prevent you from getting the cure to your loved one? Would money, you've got five days to get them, or would money be found? Would, would time, or would you put everything on hold to save that, that loved one? Would danger, how many times would a mother or father run out in the street and sacrifice their, their own self to, to save a child? He, here's the difference in, in Ali and your loved one. Fear, you were a man or woman under con the constraint of fear with Ali. That was your controlling factor. With your loved one, you were under the constraint of love. Love compelled you. And the reason that's important to understand is because it sheds light on John 3.16. For God so loved the world. The same love that Paul is speaking about here. The same love that compelled him to go to strangers and to the ends of the earth. You see, when you look at Ali, when you look at your loved one, God's love is the same. We don't know Ali. And so, therefore, we don't have a personal love for Ali. So, again, naturally, we don't see them in the same light. The love of Christ, the love of God, the way he sees uh, and the way we see once we become closer and more like Christ, that's what compels us. The, the natural love will never compel us to be self-sacrificing, never, because it's, it's this fleshly, selfish, conditional, conditional love. Um, that's the motivation for reconciliation. And just quickly, let's look at the message and the mark. Um, Romans 10, 1, 3, Paul said this, As brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with the knowledge. For not knowing, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. 
Paul's talking about his own people. Something he just come out of was this, this letter of the law kind of religion. He says they have a zeal. He, he commended them for this motivation, but he says it's not according to the knowledge, this knowledge that Paul had about the love of Christ and, and the gospel and how to be made righteous with a holy God. Paul's saying this. He says they don't understand the gospel. They, they don't understand how to be reconciled to God. And to be honest, that's what um, a lot of our society is today. It's, it's based on a, a self-righteousness. Verse 19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed, he's given that trust to us, this, this word of reconciliation. So, so as ambassadors of Christ, as ministers of reconciliation, that's our message to the world. Uh, but, but what does that mean that he committed this, this word of reconciliation. It's the gospel. It's, it's God's word. God has given us the tools to be ministers of reconciliation. Um, it, it's a seed. Think of it as a seed that the, we get this treasure trove of, of life-giving seed, and it's living and it's active. And, and there's a few things to understand. You need to make sure that we're, you're planting the right seed. Uh, what message are you really sharing? Uh, your opinions, the, your thoughts, or the word of God? Because you will reap what you sow. Uh, a farmer plants corn, he will reap corn. You sow the word of reconciliation. You give God's word and you will reap a harvest of reconciled souls. It will come. You sow it abundantly. Matthew 13 tells about a sower he went out. And here's one thing that's always been interesting of this particular parable uh, of the sower of the floor of souls is that he was just reckless with it. And I'm not saying we're reckless in ministry, but I'm saying he trusted that to put Regardless of where it landed, he just put it out there. And sometimes we become the judge of men, that, that we decide who needs God's word and who's receptive and who's not. But, but with, with the sower, he just puts it out there and leaves the results to God, the Holy Spirit, uh, to do that. And, and sometimes we say, well, you know, we're not doing abundantly. We're being very selective. You know, you go to 100 houses, 99 will slam the door in your face. Here's the thing about it. You're not looking for the 99. You're looking for the one. You're looking for the one. That's to, to sow that seed. And then you water it. You see, and again, this is sometimes excuse. Well, we planted the seed, so our job is done. But the scripture says that another Christian, Apollos, had to water it. And God takes that together, the, sow, the, the, the planting and the, and the watering, and it says he provides an increase. He's the one that brings them to salvation. Uh, what farmer would plant a seed and not just be satisfied to know no check on it, no follow-up, no anything. Jesus used agriculture terms for a reason, uh, to, to teach us spiritual truth. We water it with prayer. Without prayer, it's a lot of this is useless. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. With faith, put it out there and believe that God is going to do something with his word. You water it with more truth, with follow-up, with, with unconditional love. God takes and uses all that to bring people to Christ. And then lastly, you do this, fruit will come. Maybe not in the same season, but it'll come. And that's the mark of reconciliation. And again, we've talked about the gospel and the mark. But it says, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old is past. All the new things have come. This is describing conversion. Jesus said conversion is so radical. Being born again is so radical, it's compared to a, to a new birth. And, and don't confuse your, your experience, your testimony, Perhaps that wasn't that radical. Some people come to Christ very quietly in, in just a moment of faith. But nonetheless, conversion is radical because what has just happened, when you pray for someone to be saved, you're praying for a miracle. 
Conversion is a spiritual miracle. Ezekiel 36, 26 says it like this. He says, I'll take the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So, so, so this stony heart, many people are sitting in church all over the nation this morning with a stony heart. The things of God are coming. They're hitting. They could take it or leave it. He says, I will replace that. It's a miracle that happens in us. He says, I'll give you a heart of flesh. And this heart of flesh, is it's live and it's beating and it's pumping. It now desires the things of God. And you know what? There may be a lot of ignorance in a new Christian, but there is life. It may be like the squall of a baby, and it may be messy as a baby, but there are signs of life because there's now spiritual life. Conversion means that you're now spiritually alive. And here's what happens if... If as a, as a healthy church, if we don't understand what we're aiming for, the mark of conversion, we will become, any church will become somewhat of a social club. And, and you will be sitting with a room full of unconverted people who believe that they're converted because the message hasn't been right, the motivation hasn't been right, and the expectations of what it means to be converted just isn't there. And here's what happens, and this is called religion. People will like, they may even love the idea and concept of God, but they'll not love God himself. It's not possible without the new heart. And, um, and we're almost finished. Um, just one other thing on this, 2 Peter 2.22, speaking about false teachers, unconverted people who are religious, but it also applies to people, people say, well, isn't this a dog going back to the vomit and a pig going back to the mud, somebody who lost their salvation? Well, well, think of this quickly. A dog returns to its vomit. Why? Because he likes vomit. A pig returns to the mud. Why? Because they like the mud. You see, people, in the same way, we can be like a dog. We can throw up and feel better. We can be like a pig and clean up and look better. But if our nature has not been changed, we're still... We have the nature and desires, and we like the things of a dog and a pig. Same way with the sinful nature. If the miracle has not happened, if you've not been born again, you can clean up, you can look good, and you can be religious, but the things of God just aren't there. They're just not. When you're converted, you're referred to as a sheep. Jesus always referred to his children as sheep. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and they follow him. Now, you may sniff around the vomit, but you'll not find it appealing for long. You may fall in the mud, but you'll not wallow there. Jesus will pull you out because you now know the good things of God. Conversions, you see others different. It says you don't see them in a worldly way or even... D.L. Moody says he's seen people now with a big L or big S on their forehead, either saved or lost. It causes you to live different, no longer living for yourself. Conversion causes you to act different, maybe even to the point that, like Festus believed Paul, he was a madman. Conversion changes you. And so here's one thing to expect, and I'm going to close with this. As we go out as ambassadors of Christ, expect rejection. I'm not saying we don't expect and here's the reason, because we've redefined success in the Christian life. We, to us, success is that we have go out and people embrace it. Jesus says, expect rejection, because rejection may be your only evidence of success. Now, that seems like a, an odd statement, but rejection, the disciples went away rejoicing because they were worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Uh, it may be your only evidence of success because it may be your only proof of obedience. Obedience is success. Obedience to share the, the good news. And, and Jesus even set the example. He was rejected and obedient even to the cross. 
And Jesus says, if the servants are not above the master, uh, the servants are not above the master. If they rejected him, they'll reject us. I was at a leadership training just a few weeks ago, and it was a Christian. It was for law enforcement and, and security management. And um, the presenter said this one thing, a profound statement. He says, the problem that we have in the workplace or in the world in general, he says, we have a society full of kings and queens. And what he meant by that is we are in a society where, you know what, it's all about us. It's all about self. And he says what needs to happen is we need to have our crowns knocked off. And I remember thinking he's speaking about what a biblical worldview, that we're speaking about a society that needs to be reconciled to God. So let me ask you this morning. This is a question for all of us. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you taken off your crown? Have you stepped down from your throne and pledged your allegiance to the true king, King Jesus? And if you have, be his ambassador. Allow Christ to make his appeal through you. Go out and tell others about the kingdom of God and the king that is, is coming. Pray that others will be reconciled. And if you haven't, you can. Even this morning where you are, if you haven't, you can be reconciled. That's the good news. Because of the love of Christ, you can. Through repentance of sin, and that's by laying down your crown and faith in Christ, you look to him and surrender and trust, and you pledge your allegiance to, to him as king, confessing you with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you do that, it says you'll be saved, and you will leave here this morning reconciled to God. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf so that you may become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, uh, God, we thank you for this message of reconciliation. Thank you for the opportunity, and God, that you've reconciled us to a holy God, sinful man to a holy God. Uh, and God, you tell us now that that's, we have authority as ambassadors to go out and share this great message. God, Give us the love of Christ. Put that love and let us realize how much you've done for us. Let us reflect and meditate. And God, do something in our own hearts to the point that, that perfect love casts out all fear. God, all of our hindrances and things that come against us. God, give us somebody this week that, that you will put in front of us to share the gospel with. And God, give us the understanding that you've put them there. And then give us the courage to share this, this great message of reconciliation so that you may be glorified and and your kingdom will come. In Jesus' name, amen.